welcome everyone uh, to this uh, La Trobe Asia event on human rights in China, uh, co-hosted with Human Rights Watch. Um, my name is James Leibold. I'm a professor in politics and Asian studies at La Trobe University, and I'm going to chair the event this evening in the place of uh, La Trobe Asia's director, Beck Stratting, who is gallivanting across Europe as we speak, and you can follow her uh, travels on Twitter and get very jealous uh, of the warmth and the, uh, the the good food she's eating. Um, I want to begin by uh, paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation, uh, whose unceded land we meet on tonight and pay respect to their elders past and present, as well as uh, extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders uh, people here today. Uh, it's my great privilege to uh, introduce uh, the panelists. We really do have a star-studded uh, cast here. Uh, feel very uh, delighted to uh, welcome first uh, Yao Chao Wang, uh, senior uh, researcher uh, on China for Human Rights Watch. Uh, next to her, we've got uh, Vicky Xu, uh, a, how do I describe Vicky Xu? Uh, a former journalist with the New York Times and a policy analyst and now uh, author. Um, and then finally, last but not least, my colleague, uh, Gerald Roche, who's a senior researcher uh, at uh, Latrobe with myself. So the format for tonight's event, we've got about an hour for our discussion. I'm going to start with around 40 minutes of directed questions to uh, the panelists, and then we'll open it up for questions here uh, as well as online. And for those joining us online tonight, uh, you need to send your questions via the Q&A function. I hope that means and makes sense to you uh, and not the chat function. Um, and we'll try to get through as many of those questions as we can in the time allotted. But let me start. Um, I'm going to start with you, Yacho, because you came the furthest to be here. Uh, so it's only right that I start with you. Um, and, you know, Human Rights Watch has been tracking, you know, human rights uh, conditions for I, I don't know how long. I'm sure Elaine or Sophie could tell me decades um, and are well known for really kind of trying to put a pulse on the situation um, and do have a number of mechanisms which where you evaluate that comparatively. I wonder if you could just starting big picture, just give us a sense of uh, the condition of human rights uh, in China today. Um, uh, is it uh, at a all time low point? Uh, are there signs, encourage, any, any signs of encouragement? I wonder what your take on that is. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's my first time in Australia and I vote Melbourne over Sydney. The human rights situation in China is the worst ever since the Tiananmen massacre in 1989. Um, the all aspects of human rights has deteriorated over, since President Xi Jinping came uh, to power. Um, you know, we all know the situation in Xinjiang. It's, uh, crimes against humanity is going on. Uh, One million Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims are being detained in camps, and the ones who are not detained in camps are under heavy surveillance, and their religious uh, cultural uh, rights have been taken away. And then it's in Hong Kong. The crackdown has been dramatic ever since the national security law passed over two years ago. And even, I would say, you know, even for us who work in the field of human rights, you know, we have always been quite pessimistic, pessimistic about the situation in China, but still we did not expect the bad things 
that kind of level of bad things happening in Xinjiang, we did not expect Hong Kong's uh, freedom deteriorate so quickly over the past two years. Then look at the situation in, you know, the mainland concerning Han people, the internet freedom issue is, you know, it's really bad. Um, you know, I grew up in the, uh, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And uh, when I entered university, um, the, the Beijing Olympic, 2008 Beijing Olympic was happening. And, it, you know, at that time, people were quite optimistic about, wow, the internet came, you know, we're going to learn things that the Chinese government censored, you know, we're going to find the, the truth about the, the CCP. Then look at today's internet. The government has not only, you know, controlled it, blocked information it does not want people to see. It also did a great job in, you know, propagate the, the message it wants people to see. So, you know, in a way, look at how, you know, look at the recent Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. People were very nationalistic about it. People, you know, were in a way unhappy that the Chinese government didn't take drastic action uh, to even shoot down the plane, right? You can see how successful the government's censorship and propaganda uh, has been over the, you know, past uh, several years. Then, you know, there's also the elimination of the civil society groups um, in terms of, you know, jailing human rights activists, uh, lawyers, um, you know, then one bright spot, I would say, you know, it's women's rights. There has been like a crackdown on women's rights act activity, the, the, uh, you know, the harassment, the detention, also the censorship online. But the women are still fighting back. I mean, the, 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 the Chinese internet has been very censored, but you still see the kind of robust discussions online. So, you know, I would just end with this little bright spots. I'm glad you did that. I mean, we don't want to make this such a depressing event. And um, I think it's a good point to, uh, that there are some positive developments uh, that we can look to. But certainly if we go back and look uh, the heyday in the, you know, pre-Olympic, Beijing Olympic period and that kind of compare it to where we are today, it does look uh, like we're in a downward, uh, deep downward spiral. Um, Vicky, I might come to you. Uh, so over the last couple of years, um, you've been researching and writing about Xi Jinping's crackdown in Xinjiang. Uh, lead author of a very influential 2002 study, uh, Uyghurs for Sale, as well as a uh, 2001 uh, study, um, Architecture of Repression. Wonder what kind of surprised you? I mean, you came into it, you know, not as an expert on Xinjiang. Uh, with a journalistic background, I wonder what surprised you the most of doing that kind of deep dive into uh, into what's happening in Xinjiang, and what sort of, sort of impact do you think those reports have been able to have? Thank you, James. Well, both Uyghurs for Sale and Architecture of Repression were efforts of teamwork, and that included James' guidance on, and help over years. Um, what's most surprising for me, um, you know, in my years researching Xinjiang as a journalist slash researcher are two things. The first is how complicit all of us are and could be in the Chinese party state's crackdown on Uyghurs. So um, one of the report we were speaking of before, Uyghurs for Sale, talked about how um, you know, uh, Uyghurs are 
being forced to make things in China, to manufacture things in China. Um, you know, we know that a lot of them have been moved from camps to factories, um, and a lot of people are assigned to work in factories and compelled to do labor um, for very low pay and under very harsh conditions. And um, their labor goes into China's vast and complicated supply chains. Um, and we found in our research, we found that uh, we identified 83 global brands that are potentially and to varying degrees, um, uh, you know, that they have um, evidence of forced labor exists in their supply, supply chain. So that includes very well-known brands like Nike, Adidas, um, LG, Samsung, um, these ho household brands that we all use. So, you know, you and I, we could all be using iPhone. We could all, you know, I couldn't have gotten here without my iPhone. So where does that leave us? So that's one of the really surprising things for me, uh, surprising things for me. And the second one is how much um, the Uyghur crackdown, crisis, cri crimes against humanity, genocide, whatever you call it, um, how much that is not new. You know, we read about it in the news, so we assume it's new, but it's not because it resembles the cultural evolution. It resembles um, the uh, previous crackdowns that's happened in China so much. Um, but because of this wide understanding um, since China opened up in the 80s um, that you know, China has changed and China is trying to become a part of the world and capitalism, this assumption that capitalism will eventually transform China, will eventually help China become a more democratic society, a more open society. Because of this understanding, um, I think we forgot how the party state system has a tendency um, to purge, to start um, mass campaigns that don't make economic sense, that don't make political sense. Um, and the Uyghur crisis, you know, from our research of architecture of repression, we very much found that, you know, um, there are um, people have to pledge allegiance, um, people have are subject to very pervasive propaganda um, and they have to participate in propaganda. One example is that, you know, they have to record videos of themselves pledging allegiance. Um, officials have to write articles um, essentially denouncing their Uyghur culture and heritage. Um, so these aspects that are less talked about can you know, can actually be quite illuminating um, and tell us, you know, what's always been existing in the party state system um, and uh, what could be coming, which is um, campaign style governance that's even more widespread, you know, that spreads beyond Xinjiang. And uh, we can see a little bit of that in mainland China, other provinces already under COVID. You know, China is still fighting COVID under the COVID zero policy. Um, and the very kind of strict management of neighborhoods and the uh, limitations to people's movements already reflect to a degree uh, of, you know, resembles what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, so yeah, those are the most two most surprising aspects. 
And I've certainly started to think more carefully about what I buy, but it's often very hard. Uh, the other day we were going to get some new bed sheets, and I was thinking, okay, a lot of times they don't identify where they're even manufactured. So I thought, well, we'll get Egyptian cotton. But how do I know that Egyptian cotton actually comes from Egypt? You know, it's just a brand. Um, so these things are really hard in supply chains. I mean, uh, mind-bogglingly complex. Uh, but um, I'd like to think that your work on Uyghurs for Sale really helped us to sort of hone in on uh, some of those concerns and what consumers can do um, about it. Um, Gerald, I come to you um, thinking, Yasha brought up the pre-Olympic period uh, in some of my research, uh, thinking back in the 1950s, in some ways it was a heyday of ethnocultural rights in China. You know, the party uh, identified 56 uh, different groups and in some regards, you know, created autonomous regions. It uh, empowered them uh, to be masters of their own domain. It uh, helped them write histories, languages. You've studied language rights for a long time. Um, and when you kind of and, and, and researched in Qinghai and spent a lot of time in Qinghai working with the Tibetan communities there, um, uh, I wonder, looking back over the, the big period, you know, kind of what I was saying to Yao we had a real new low point for language rights uh, and language activism. Uh, uh, again, is there any signs of hope uh, that you can think of? In terms of uh, bright spots or thinking about hopeful developments on the horizon in terms of language rights in China, it, it's really hard to find anything very much to be encouraged by at the moment, particularly if we look at the official level in terms of policy and practice by the state. Um, I guess there are a couple of encouraging community practices that we saw emerge, particularly during the pandemic where communities were taking the initiatives themselves to produce translations of government health materials into their own languages. And, and that was really good, but it also, um, it, it also highlights a problem in that they shouldn't have had to do that. They shouldn't have been in the place where they were reliant on their own resources and initiative to do that in the first place, uh, because it should be an obligation of the state to provide that information to people in the languages that they best understand. So even in the areas where we can say that there are some bright spots of, of hope, what they really do is demonstrate activities in areas where the state is failing to meet its obligations anyway. So in terms of where we're at, in terms of language rights in China. I'd say it's probably the, the worst that it's ever been, but I would also say that it's always been extremely bad when it comes to um, the recognition of linguistic diversity being a particular problem. So a lot of the coverage that we read in the news and uh, in reports about human rights in China and in academic press tends to focus on big languages, big minority languages like Tibetan, like Uyghur, like Mongolian. These languages are all recognised by the state. Uh, they're all acknowledged as existing and they are given some limited role in public on signs, a little bit in education, etc. but all of that is being gradually suppressed. The real dark spots, if we think about the opposite of bright spots, the real dark spots in language rights in China is for the hundreds of languages that the state refuses to recognise as even existing and having any claims on any rights or freedoms whatsoever. So the Chinese constitution, for example, talks about um, minorities having the right 
having the freedom to use and develop their own languages. But nowhere does it specify what those languages are in uh and so that's left in up to discretionary mechanisms. And basically what happens then is that James mentioned the system of the 56 minorities. So the 56 minorities are, are each sort of unofficially appointed a designated single language, uh, which means that in total the state has to kind of manage 56 languages for 56 minorities. Across all of China, what we actually have is something like 300 languages, which every every one of the 56 nationalities has more than one language. So that means that even when the state recognises a single language for each of those 56 minorities, that suppresses all the other languages that they speak. Uh, and by suppress, I mean it refuses to institutionalise them in things like education, healthcare, the media, uh, communications with the government, and so on. Um, I've studied this most extensively with the case of Tibetan. So the, the party state recognises the Tibetan people as existing, which is good. They recognise that they have a language, which they model on the written Tibetan language, which no one actually speaks. Um, but then Tibetan people actually speak a host of other languages. So beyond anything that you could reasonably describe as Tibetan, uh, Tibetan people also speak about 30 other languages. Uh, and all of those languages completely suppressed, totally excluded from all public institutions, no capacity for them to even lobby the state to protest in relation to those languages because the state refuses to recognise that they exist. So that refusal to recognise diversity has been persistent since the founding of the PRC. So that that's kind of like the background has never really changed. All, all we've seen in recent years, particularly under Xi Jinping, is an intensification on attacks on those large recognised languages like Tibetan, like Uyghur, like Mongolian. But those unrecognised languages, they're really the canary in the coal mine of what's going to happen to those bigger languages. Um, and what we've seen is that the, the people who use those languages have responded that to that suppression by shifting to other languages. So about half of the languages in China are being spoken by fewer and fewer people all the time because they're making a choice to respond to that suppression. Um, and, and that's where these bigger languages like Tibetan, Mongolian and Uyghur are also going to be headed. Thanks, Gerald. A pretty grim picture there of linguistic diversity in China. So I'll go back to you, Yacho, and just um, wondering what your take is on the way China appears to be working the UN system. I mean, it's really been one of the foundations for the protection of universal human rights. Um, but we've seen that eroded pretty significantly. Um, and China's really tried pretty hard to, to not, not to abandon uh, human rights, so they still use the term, but rather redefine it. So I wonder if you could tell us, like, how are they redefining it and how successful is that effort to redefine it globally? As we're speaking right now, we at Human Rights Watch are eagerly waiting for the report by Michelle Bachelor, who is the, high, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights 
which is the chief officer of human rights in the UN system. So she visited Xinjiang a couple of months ago. And uh, so um, we already didn't expect her to meeting, you know, Uyghur, any Uyghurs. Uh, but then she met with Chinese officials. Then she, in her press conference speech, she parroted it you know, the Chinese government's narrative about Xinjiang. She said, oh, the commanding of the Chinese government's effort on counterterrorism uh, activities. You know, we, the, 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 the Uyghur community and the human rights community were very disappointed or, you know, angry to see that kind of language uh, spoken by the chief human rights officer at the UN system. So it really says, you know, the encroachment by China in the system, how successful is that, that it made the chief human rights officer in the UN to say what the Chinese government wants uh, her to say. This is a clear example. Now we would want her to release the report. She's going to end her term by this month, by, by the end of this month, the report is still not out. You know, uh, we have no idea how the Chinese government is working on her within the system, but we see the effects of, you know, the Chinese government's work on her, right? So we hope, we're still at this day, we hope that uh, the report will have strong languages and are able to, you know, show show the scale and the magnitude of the, the rights violations in Xinjiang. So we will see that's, you know, and a good example. In terms of uh, how the Chinese government is uh, redefine what we know as human rights. Um, in the U, the Chinese government, you know, in the Human Rights Council, it had uh, successfully uh, passed resolutions to, you know, promote an alternative version of human rights that emphasize on development, uh, that uh, undermines accountability, undermines, you know what we know as civil and political rights. Basically, the government wants to say, you know, uh, your uh, freedom of speech is not important. Freedom of speech uh, shouldn't be an important part of the human rights. Uh, economic development should be an important part of the rights. So, you know, in a way, it has been able to push that kind of idea through the system. Uh, you know, beyond the system, I, you know, I feel it, it's, it has been quite successful in pushing ideas in developing countries, in Africa countries, you know, the Chinese model is quite appealing to authoritarian leaders in Africa, in South Asia and Southeast Asia. You know, they feel, oh, you know, we want economic development as the way China, you know, as what China has done without uh, giving people's right to speech, giving people's right to protests. And, um, you know, I have gone to different countries and talked to people in those countries. And I think especially the elite, I, I think that, you know, they find the, the, the Chinese way of, uh, you know, um, doing, you know, human rights is uh, appealing. So in, in a way, I think it, it, it has been successful. But in the past uh, several years, you know, couple of years, I do see pushbacks from, you know, countries, uh, whether it's from, uh, within the UN system or outside of UN system, um, 
uh, when uh, you know countries uh, when China has rallied its uh, friends in the UN, uh, usually involves like countries like North Korea and Cuba and Pakistan to issue um, statements in support of uh, China's you know activities in Xinjiang. Then there's um, pushbacks from other governments, uh, you know, usually Western governments, and they issue joint statements to condemn what's uh, the situation in Xinjiang. So uh, we see more and more that kind of pushback. And also um, we see the independent experts in the UN system, they're called special rapporteur, then they have the, the, the those kind of ex experts have get together and they have issued a strong um, joint statements condemn the situation um, outside the UN system. Uh, you know, in Australia, it's, I think what happened in the past two years, I think it has been quite, uh, you know, encouraging that uh, the government has, uh, you know, taken more, uh, I would say at least rhetorically speaking, has been speaking up uh, recently, you know, with regard to the detention of the Australian journalist, uh, Chen Lei, you know, the the, um, uh, you, the foreign minister has shown um, statements about that. And also the Australian government had called there was the first to call and the WHO investigation into the origin of the coronavirus. Then there was the push, uh, you know, like retaliation by the Chinese government and Australia has weathered it well, you know. So uh, I hope to see more government pushback uh, against China. And if governments do it together, it will be, you know, effective. Yeah, thank you. I think that the Bachelet report will be a, a real bellwether to, you know, where, where, um, the UN system is at with regards to human rights. Um, Vicky, I'll turn to you. Um, the, the, uh, as you well know, the Chinese uh, government, the Chinese Communist Party has been increasingly assertive in uh, limiting or silencing any international criticism uh, of its policies or what it perceives to be international criticism. Uh, we see that uh, across the globe. We see it here in Australia. Wonder in which what ways that occurs, um, and what if anything can be done about that. I mean, how how you know all governments obviously want to uh, promote their national interests. Uh, is China do it in a way that is uh, different from the way Australia does it? And how concerned should we be about that? Thank you so much for the question, James. I think if I have to sum up the way that China um, or the Chinese government party state deals with criticism or any discussion at all, it is that um, if you want to discuss or have anything to do with China, you either toe the line or shut up. Um, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a third choice. Um, so a few examples, right? In terms, you know, discussions on China, um, Australian politicians who have made comments on China, um, that are deemed unfavorable. They, uh, for example, Andrew Hasty and James Patterson, um, they're not given visas to go to China anymore. And more recently, Nancy Pelosi and um, her families have been sanctioned by China because of her visit to Taiwan. And, and uh, you know, during times when the Chinese government perceived the Australian government to be unfriendly or uncooperative, um, our Australian um, 
officials, they couldn't get their Chinese counterparts on the phone. So there's this kind of silent treatment, this kind of punishment um, to the Australian government. And then in terms of academia, I remember uh, in 2019, uh, when I was reporting for the New York Times, I was writing about self-censorship um, at universities. And this really bizarre thing happened. Um, I would go around and interview academics um, who, you know, not only um, study China, but, you know, they have anything to do with China. They would mention China, you know, there would be IT professors, there would be agriculture professors. When I talked to them, they would say, yes, we realized that talking about China and especially in a favorable way could cost you your job. You know, there was a accounting professor who was fired by Monash because of um, mentioning China in an unfavorable way. Um, but the funny thing was that when I tried to get them on the record, when I tried to get anyone to talk about these experiences of censorship, um, you know, be, be quoted in my article, they all declined. And that is the ultimate proof of self-censorship. And Human Rights Watch um, has also released a fantastic report on the dire condition on our campuses where you know, Australian students, including those from mainland China, have been harassed, intimidated, and silenced, and they cannot, they do not have full rights um, to study and pursue, you know, their intellectual development here in Australia. Um, and then moving on to, no, staying here in academia, um, you know, China has issued multiple rounds of demands for Australia to rectify its behaviors um, in order to get the trades going again. And uh, there was one time there was 14 demands. And one of those demands is for the our former employer, my former employer, uh, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, to cease to exist, basically, you know, because we have written about um China's human rights abuses, we have written about Uyghur forced labor. Um, so again, it's, you know, if you want to talk about China, that's fine. But if you're going to criticize it, then you shouldn't exist. So it's very much that China uses the same standards it does um, domestically. It applies the same standards to everybody um, in the world. And, you know, outside of journalism, academia, government, um, I, I, I hope people remember when, you know, our airlines like Qantas or Virgin, when they listed Taiwan and Hong Kong as um, countries, you know, because travel wise, they are because I can't as a Chinese citizen, I would not be able to travel to Taiwan on my Chinese passport without a visa. So um, but uh, when airlines listed Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong as countries, um, they were met with punitive measures by the Chinese government. Um, so again, you know, comply or shut up. And it's never been worse. Um, how can we do about it? Um, I would really like to expand on that um, because as an individual, as a journalist, uh, I myself have faced uh, a persecution while I'm on shore in Australia. Um, and I feel, you know, I, I felt unsafe. Um, I felt uneasy coming to this event and I felt um, unsafe living in Australia. Um, but this is not the case for a lot of uh, my American counterparts like Yachel um, and a lot of journalists who live and work in America. And I think part of the reason or 
you know, that my counterparts tell me part of the reason is because um, the U.S. has taken very harsh measures. And, you know, just two months ago, I think in July, the DOJ Department of Justice has just issued another indictment on five individuals in New York who have tried to um, attack and harass or intimidate China critiques. And so with, you know, strong measures from officials, I think people who do work in the China field, who do research and do report on China and from, you know, China, Australia, China, America relations, they have a better sense of safety. I think that's a that's a good starting point to get the conversation going again, to get the discussion going again, like very basic physical safety. Thanks, Vicky. Yeah, worth the worth an applause. I mean, I think it's worth noting. You know, the um, uh, our Chinese migrant communities, whether it be in Australia or uh, in the U.S., are really in this double bind. One, you know, under pressure to uh, toe the party line, but also the the anti Asian racism that's really been stoked uh, recently in the face of uh, the deterioration of relations. Uh, so it's really important to kind of remember that and make sure that that there's no one to one equation between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. Um, Gerald, a question without notice, um, and I know you're up to it, because uh, I know you've written about this, and I was thinking about it today. Uh, one of the common responses of um, Chinese uh, government officials, as well as people in the Twitter sphere, uh, about human rights abuses is this uh, so-called whataboutism. Uh, what about the stolen generation of Australia? What about the high incarceration rates of African-Americans in the U.S.? My question to you is like, how effective is that? What aboutism? I mean, what do you make of it? Uh, but also the other side is how effective is our attempts to call out China in terms of human rights abuse? You know, sometimes, you know, it tends into kind of a bit of self-righteous chest beating. Is there other ways that you might think might be more effective? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so let me see, what can I say about this? So it, it's a constant, it, it's a constant theme of anyone who has ever said anything critical about uh, China on the internet, that you will be met immediately with this claim of what about. So, for example, when I talk online about uh, indigenous about indigenous languages of China and the rates of language shift and the state sponsored language oppression, etc., someone will simply turn around and say, like, "Well, what about what's happening in Australia?" And it's like, well, okay, that's fine because Australia has an atrocious record on Indigenous languages. And I've written about that. I've collaborated with Indigenous scholars. But Twitter doesn't enable you to sort of bring your CV to the discussion, right? And so instead what those what about claims um, do is they act, they have a rhetorical function of just closing down the debate in its entirety. And so the problem with those um, claims is that, okay, first of all, they're logical fallacies, right? It doesn't matter logically um, if I live in a country that is eliminating its Indigenous languages. That doesn't matter to the, the claim that your country is also doing that. It doesn't change it. Um, but these debates aren't logical debates. They are political debates. And in political debates, things like legitimacy, and morals matter, you need to have a moral leg to stand on. You need to be able to make legitimate claims, and, and it's hard to do that sometimes. Um, so I think that that has, like, it does have some important 
implications for how we advocate for human rights, the strategies that we use and so on. Um, I think it's good and I would encourage everyone to continue just being openly critical, first of all. I think that that's important to do. But I think that we also need to think about other strategies that um, serve other purposes in terms of advancing human rights inside China. So, like, I think we do that primarily by setting good examples. And I think that that's really important. Um, we set good examples of good human rights practice in our own countries. We advocate for justice and inclusion for marginalized people in our own countries. We raise our voice against racism and for Indigenous causes in our own countries because that demonstrates that um, that we care and that we are capable of being even-handed in our criticisms. But more importantly, so I think that a lot of human rights advocacy tends on trying to shift states' behaviours, that we want China to act in certain ways, we want them to stop doing this, etc. cetera. Uh, that's good. That's fine. We do need to do that. It's important to try and alter states' behavior. But China essentially um, is going to do what it wants, particularly in response to Australia's criticisms, right? We don't make much of a difference to them, I think. But what we can do is send very clear messages to people inside China who do know what's happening and they do see what... Uh, what we are able to achieve in these contexts, right, in Australia. Uh, we give them good examples to look up to, to think, to help people imagine what's possible. I think that that is really important. And I think that that's important. That's based on conversations that I've had with, uh, you know, contacts inside China who will be able to say things like, we saw blah, blah, blah on the news. We hope our day will come, right? And that's what it's about. It's about keeping alive that hope of people that their day will come, that things will change and that they, and that they can change. And so I think that that aspect of providing positive examples as well as the negative critique, both of those things need to work together. Thanks, Gerald. Um, well, I might open um, uh, the floor for, for questions. I might start here in the room. This is uh, your reward for uh, trekking out uh, in, a, in a cold Melbourne evening, but also online. Please um, keep the questions coming and we'll try to get through as many as we can. I'm Judith. I'm a Tullis. I, my role is just as a global politics teacher at year 12 level. Um, just when I observe the mainstream media in Australia, I on this topic of Sid and Jane, I, I repeatedly see um, sort of rehashing of sort of the same sort of commentary, you know, and it seems like things aren't even updated, you know, like the number of people in incarceration and all of those sort of figures. And the other thing I, I barely ever see mention of um, the evidence of forced organ harvesting, you know, or um, I hardly ever see mention of the... Um, incarceration of children or any speculation about what the Chinese Communist Party is aiming or what its plan is for those children in the next in the next decade. Um, and I'm just wondering how much self-censorship is going on in Australian media and what, what can we do to confront this? You know, it's almost like the media is sanitised 
That's what it seems like to me. While I was working in these rooms, I did notice and I did feel a lot of fear around reporting in China, especially Xinjiang. I'll give everyone an example. In 2018, the entire year, I was pushing really, really hard um, to write about the Uyghurs. But at the time, the international society was less aware of what's going on in Xinjiang. And there was very little appetite for writing about Xinjiang. So around June, um, I made my first reporting trip to Adelaide, where uh, the most Australian uh, Uyghur Australians live. Um, and I was able to, you know, interview people and have an understanding of, you know, how many relatives each family is missing. Um, and when I came back with this reporting, um, the my my boss back then was was apprehensive. They they asked me, you know, why would you spend your weekend on a trip to to Adelaide to report on such a depressing issue? Are you Uyghur? Like, what's your problem? Um, and then my next job, um, my my new boss asked um, asked me to drop to kill the story basically um, as a prerequisite to, to to get a job at the different uh, newsroom because the second newsroom was scared of China and losing access to China. So inside of newsrooms, there's censorship. And then there's also that there's competing, like newsrooms um, and journalists are constantly competing for attention. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in the newsrooms, we look at the numbers, you know, how many clicks each story gets. Um, unfortunately, the Uyghur stories or the organ harvesting stories don't get huge numbers usually. Um, so newsrooms would make commercial choices uh, when it comes to these matters. And then the last but not least, um, staff, you know, if you want to report on China, if you want to report on organ harvesting, you need um, talent inside of newsrooms who can look into these issues, who can talk in Chinese with sources. But then these people are often come from mainland China, like me and Yacho. Um, and, you know, we are vulnerable because we have hostages back home. We have loved ones and friends back home. So most um, mainland Ch China journalists from mainland China that I know tend to focus on, you know, technology or environment or culture, you know, not because they're not passionate about human rights. They can be very passionate about human rights, but not everyone can be so ruthless to 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 their own family and uh, friends back home to be fixated on human rights, um, like myself and Yajo, I guess. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Vicky. I might um, ask one of the online questions, question from Aston Kwok. He's asking about what universities uh, can do to address the issue of academics feeling like they need to self-censor uh, as it relates to China. Um, so I know human rights Watch uh, issued a code of conduct. So maybe I'll start with you, Yacho, and then I'll go to Gerald, who is an academic in a university, to get a sense of um, how, how pervasive you think the problem is and what could be done about it. I think for students and for academics who feel, you know, they have to self-censor, I think, first of all, universities needs to, you know, provide at least collect the information. I don't think the university, even at that level, like they're not, you know, the university I talked to, like they don't even aware it. You know, there are this kind of harassment, intimidation of uh, and the self-censorship that are going on. So make 
you know, say that we are aware of this issue, we care about this issue. If you face that kind of a fear, you face real harassment, to come to the leadership to talk about it. This is a first, right? Then, you know, I know like, you know, there are certain, you know, I'm not an academic, but you have to uh, go through a certain process to, in, in order to, you know, interview people or, you know, there, there are certain requirements for like disclosure and people worry about that. You know, I don't want to disclose my name uh, by doing this paper. You know, their university needs to be cognizant of the particular kind of concern the the study of China field has. And maybe, you know, say uh, if you feel of, a fear of repercussion for being associated with this paper, you know, you can use it, uh, uh, you, you know, you can be an, an anonymous author. I don't know, you know, how exactly that should be carried out, but I think at least the university needs to uh, have that kind of, uh, you know, mindset that uh, this isn't a serious issue. We need to come together and, uh, uh, you know, design strategies and processes to address it. Um, you know, maybe, you know, academics who know the ins and outs, how it works, can speak on that specific yeah, so I think that there's a bunch of things. I mean, there's a bunch of structural problems in the Australian tertiary education system which which contribute to this problem of censorship and self-censorship amongst academics. So, for example, one of the simple things that could be done across universities that would help academics speak more freely is job security, right, and allow people to have stable ongoing jobs where they were able to continue doing their research because people self-censor in order to maintain their careers. If their careers were secure, they wouldn't, that would be less of a concern. So I think there are really, like, simple prosaic things that they can do in that regards to protect their researchers. Um, these problems extend out to the national level and the way that uh, competitive funding is allocated from the government. Everyone is scrambling to get research funding um, from the Australian Research Council. That's driven by, uh, you know, it's competitive system. You have to be productive. It's all decided on the national interest. Um, it's got to pass the pub test. There have been examples of uh, the education minister scuttling projects that focused on China because they didn't pass the pub test. The public wouldn't be interested in them. We need to roll that back as well, and we need to invest in research in China to improve understanding. And the third one I would say is like to stop treating international students and particularly Chinese students like cash cows. We've done that for 10, 15 years, right, with no concern whatsoever for the um, challenges that those students will face, the security issues that they will face, nothing to protect their freedom of speech in classrooms, right, just imported them profited from them, shipped them out again on this rotating basis for years and years and years, right? And so to stop exploiting Chinese students as an economic resource and to consider them as human beings with legitimate rights that the university has a responsibility to ensure would also be an important part of that, I think. I might see if there's another question here on the floor. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing the information. Uh, it's very interesting. Actually, um, I, I don't have a question. I would like to share um, some of my own um, opinion or observation. Uh, first, I'm, I used to be a cash call. I graduated from <laughs> MIT. <laughs> I'm trying to do some cashing, but do some business after COVID. So I'd like to talk about, because tonight we focus on human rights. And my observation is because it's getting worse because the uh, after Xi Jinping came to power and everything is like um, changing rapidly. And uh, I think it's because um, there's like a tactic the government used that focus dominantly on the uh, economic growth. So there's like a hunger game happening in China to be rich, have a better life and so competitive. You go overseas to study and you come back some kind of like background, like see different part of the world. So when you focus so much on money and others, the feeling can be neglected and they have less sensible about what right they have. So they kind of don't think about that that much and because it focus on gaining money um, and also I want to share about the uh, the language language diversity you mentioned that quite interesting um, we used to like like a decade ago like 10 years ago we have the discussion in China media people worried about the distinction of language it's not they, they didn't refer to uh, the Mongolian language, they, they refer to the dialect because on TV it's all Mandarin and people, they're losing their own dialect when they speak. So you only can see it like um, stand-up comedian or drama, you can see language that people enjoy it. Um, so we're losing that part in general of dialect and diversity language. Uh, but a good thing to see is um, with the internet, the government had the most. They spent a lot of effort to do the censorship. They, but they share videos like uh, different lifestyle, like tourists traveling. So they go to, uh, you know, Mongolia, go to Tibet, and probably they have more voice and uh, can bring to the spotlight about what they need. Thank you. I wonder if I kind of I'll turn that slightly into a question. I mean, Yacho, you're such a keen observer of the, the Chinese internet. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are uh, under Xi Jinping's efforts to censor it. I mean, it, you know, it's, we've all long said it's like a cat and mouse game. You know, has the cat won? You know, is there any hope for the mouse? I think it has gone worse. I mean, you know, I think the, the change is that there had been some censorship. Censorship has gone worse, right? So when I was a college student in China, like, our fear of censorship is from the government. Government can remove your account, can suspend you. Some of them have gone to jail because of you say too much, right? On the internet, you criticize the government. Now people know they don't, they're not just worried about the government come after them. They are worried about other Chinese people come after them because of, you know, if you criticize the government, if you are pro Hong Kong, uh, you know, you pro Taiwan, then other nationalistic uh, on online users are coming after you. Uh, you know, they would tell you or they would do the human flash search. You know, they try to find private information and they try to go after you. So now I think, you know, the, the government has done such a good job in censorship 
uh, propaganda that uh, it has its like uh, army of uh, people who work for the government for free. So I, you know that's just uh, the state of uh, the situation. And also when there's so much choice, uh, you know, if you're worried both by your you know your fellow countrymen and worried about the government and people who are critical of the government, they no longer wanted to participate in the discussion. So when there's uh, even fewer uh, you know, people who wanted to participate in the discussion, who wanted to express critical views. For the younger generation, you know, they even have fewer people to, you know, to learn from. Because when I was 20 years old, there were the 40 year old, 50 year old, they were like very enthusiastic about telling me the stories I don't know, telling me, giving me the knowledge I don't know. Now a 20 year old, they have nobody to, to talk to, to, nobody to learn from. Great, great observations. Um... We're sort of out of time. I might last one more last question, uh, if you don't mind just going slightly over. I'm um, 80 years old. I've been an activist, a humanitarian, and I look to help disadvantaged people. I'm not political. I ask one question. Would you rather live in Washington or Beijing? I might start with you, Yasha. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward question. Um, if I had a choice, I would have preferred to live in Beijing. You don't need to expand on that, but we can imagine. That's such a good question. Would I live in Washington or Beijing? I think I would spend half of, the t half of my time in each city if I could, but I cannot go to Beijing. Like, I think before the end of communist rule, so Washington. I'm going to slightly dodge that question by saying I, I lived in China for eight years. I lived in the city of Xining on the northeast Tibetan plateau in Qinghai province, a beautiful place that where I enjoyed living and learning very much. I can no longer go back to China because of my research, uh, because of my work. I am a threat to my friends and my former colleagues who are harassed um, because of the work that I do. If I could, if I could choose, I would definitely not live in Washington. I would definitely not live in Beijing. I've always hated both of those cities. I would return to Xining to live. That's a good, a good response. Mine would be because I can't go to China either. And I did live in Beijing and the pollution was terrible. And no way would I want to live in the 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 US, my home country. You know, the guns would scare me senseless so i think how lucky are we that we live here in, in australia in melbourne so we'll we'll end uh we'll end the discussion with that and uh, i feel very fortunate uh, to uh to be here in melbourne with all you and with these fantastic panelists so please uh, a round of applause for our great panelists um and thank you everyone online and uh, apologies online that i couldn't get to a lot of the questions um and uh questions here in the audience um i'm sure the panels will stay around for a little bit if you want to come up and have a chat and otherwise we'll hopefully see you at another latrobe asia event in the future check out their website for upcoming events and thank you very much <laughs>